Have you heard of Audie Murphy? You know who Audie Murphy is? All right. No, he wasn't a cowboy star. I'm sorry. Army. After Pearl Harbor, at the age of 17, he lied about his birth date so that he could join the army. He first saw action in 1943. By the end of the war, Audie received every combat award for valor that the U.S. had to offer. He won French and Belgian awards for heroism as well. He became the most decorated soldier for combat action in U.S. military history. It's easier to remember some of the bigger names of World War II, like Patton or Eisenhower or MacArthur, but Audie's heroics are the stuff of legend. He fought in France, in Sicily, in the liberation of Rome. During one battle, he ordered his men to fall back from an onslaught of tanks and infantrymen. Alone, he mounted an abandoned burning tank destroyer and with a single machine gun contested the enemy's advance. He was wounded in the leg during heavy fire, but he remained there for nearly an hour, repelling the attack of German soldiers on three sides. Now, Audie survived the war, and in fact, in 1955, he played himself in the hit film To Helen Back, which was based on his actions during World War II. That movie held the record as Universal Studios' highest grossing film for the next 20 years, from 55 to 75. Now, 1 Samuel is full of unforgettable characters and big names. Uh, But perhaps the most inspiring, if we look closely, is Saul's son, Jonathan. It can be easy for us to overlook his life or at least find it to be overshadowed by some of the other personalities in the book. He lived during an incredible period of change and transition in the history of Israel, and his story is surrounded by two of the most dramatic characters in all the Old Testament, David and Saul. David, of course, we know is the poet king, the giant slayer, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the ancestor of the Messiah. I mean, he had his own covenant with God. No one here has their own named covenant with God. We're in the new covenant with Jesus Christ, but none of us have our own named covenant with the Lord. And so obviously David is a big deal. And then we have Saul, the son of Kish. He's Israel's first king who starts with such power and promise, but If you read his story, we see he takes a path of pride and selfishness and paranoia, and we watch in horror as the chapters unfold and his heartbreaking story turns into a tragedy. Now, in the midst of all of that and a lot more, we have this other character that pops up from time to time, Jonathan, and he's truly remarkable, a truly special Bible character. He's part judge, part prophet, part prince. He's a bold warrior, a loving family man. He's deeply devoted to God and to the people of God, and he does not flinch even in the hardest of circumstances. Bible commentator Charles Ellicott wrote this, the character of the princely son of Saul is one of the most beautiful in the Old Testament story. He was the type of a true warrior of those wild, half-barbarous times, among brave men, seemingly the bravest, a perfect soldier, whether fighting as a simple man-at-arms or as a general of an army, chivalrous and generous, utterly free from jealousy, a fervid believer in the God of Israel, a devoted and loyal son, a true patriot in the highest sense of the word, who sealed a devoted life by a noble death dying as he did, fighting for his king and for his people. The long, steady friendship of Jonathan, no doubt, had a powerful and enduring influence on the afterlife of the greatest of Hebrew sovereigns, 
The words, the unselfish, beautiful love, and above all, the splendid example of the ill-fated son of Saul have no doubt given their coloring to many of the noblest utterances in David's Psalms and to not a few of the most heroic deeds in David's life. As we look at Jonathan in the next couple of weeks, I want us to look at him from three different perspectives. Jonathan the warrior, Jonathan the friend, Jonathan the son. We're given more than one story, one, more than one incident from each one of those angles, warrior, son, friend. And in each, we'll see how brightly he shines and serves for us as both instruction and inspiration. Tonight, we wanna learn from Jonathan as a warrior. The account of his life falls between 1 Samuel 13 and 31. It begins and ends on the battlefield. And so it seems fitting to begin our dissection of his story Uh, looking at him as a warrior. Now, some context might help. Jonathan lived about 1,000 or 1,100 years before Christ's birth. The nation of Israel was coming out of the time of the judges. In fact, Samuel, we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel was Israel's last judge and first prophet. Back then, they called them seers. Uh, But one, one resource describes the time of the judges this way. It says, The time of the judges was about 300 years of political, moral, and spiritual anarchy and deterioration. Uh, It's a terrible time, not just because of the oppression that God's people were facing, but the condition of their spiritual lives as well. As you go through the book of 1 Samuel, you'll see even the priesthood had been corrupted and uh, some really bad stuff was going on, which, by the way, makes Jonathan's example to us shine all the more brightly. Uh, You know, when you... If you are ever in the business of buying a gemstone, if you ever go to buy a diamond, they're gonna do the same thing every time for you. They're gonna take that diamond out and they're gonna put it on black velvet, right? Because with that black background, that diamond is gonna shine and sparkle all the brighter. And in a sense, that's Jonathan with the backdrop of Israel coming out of the time of Judges. As Judges closes, says everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, But not Jonathan, he's gonna do what's right in the Lord's eyes. Now, during this period of time, the Philistines are the main antagonists of God's people. They had a lot of power. They had a lot of technology. They had a lot of determination. They had huge armed forces, not only in number, but also in actual stature. We remember that giants like Goliath lived with and fought for the Philistines. We don't know for certain, but using our best estimates, it seems that Jonathan is in his late teens or early 20s kind of like Audie Murphy when he's introduced to us in 1 Samuel 13. So that's kind of the background and that's the setting as we're introduced to this character. 1 Samuel 13, 2 says, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. So here's what's happened. Most of you are familiar with the broad strokes of the story. But Israel came to Samuel, and who had been their judge and their prophet, and he had worked with the priest Eli, and they said, okay, Eli's gone. His sons were super corrupt. Your sons don't follow after the Lord either, Samuel, so we want a king so that we can be like all the nations of the world. People of Israel demanded a king. God allowed it in his grace. And after a great victory against the Ammonites, Saul then kind of rallies together here, like 300,000 troops come together and they fight against the Ammonites and beat them. 
but now Saul sends 99% of the army away and he retains a relatively small force and two thirds he keeps with him and one third he gives to his son, 2,000 to 1,000. And they station themselves about four and a half miles apart here at Gibeah and Michmash. In between the two of them, if you pulled out an old map or maybe your you know, analog Bible will have a map in the back of the Israel under David, but in between these two places is Geba. And the Philistines had established a garrison there. Verse three, Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison in Geba and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. And then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. What we find throughout Jonathan's story is that he was a man of selfless courage who consistently sought out ways to glorify God and glorify God's anointed one. Uh, I don't want us to skip ahead too far here, but Jonathan cared about who is God's anointed. Is it Saul? Then I want to honor Saul. Is it David? Then I'm going to honor David. He cared about who was God's anointed and how he could honor him and support him and serve him. And he also cared about what does God think? What does God want to do? And he cared about God's people. That was his focus all the time. And he, he aimed his life at these things at great personal expense and great peril. Sometimes we'll find he had to do it alone, but he did not falter in his faithfulness or his daring or his expectation that God was going to do things on behalf of his people. It's one of the great characteristics of Jonathan is that he always believes God was on their side. And not that that meant that God would do whatever they wanted, but he always retained this belief that God was on the side of his people, Israel. And if that they would go his way and if they would obey him, if they would honor him, then they would be unstoppable. And that glorious, magnificent things would happen in their midst and through their work. He kept believing that uh, all the time throughout his life. Some commentators suggest at this point that uh, Jonathan simply tore down a Philistine pillar or a flagstaff. Others suggest that he only assassinated one official in Gibeah or Geba, depends on what your translation is. But it seems clear that the plain meaning is what happened. Jonathan took his 1,000 soldiers and he went and he attacked this military outpost that was between him and King Saul, which frankly is what King Saul should have done. He had the greater force, he was the king, and they were fresh off of a victory. And so he goes and says, hey, there's bad guys right over there, like a mile and a half away, a couple miles away. We need to go take care of that. Let's go do something. I've got a thousand men. We're ready to go. And so he goes and they destroy this garrison. Now, this action kicked off a major fight, a full-blown war between Israel and the Philistines. But did you notice a little footnote there? It was that Saul was taking credit for the win at Geba. Two things are important to note. First, as readers, you know, if you know the story of Jonathan or if you know the story of Saul, as readers, you, we rightly love Jonathan and rightly disapprove of Saul in general, right? And so as readers, we think, hey, man, that's not your victory. You didn't do any of that. He says, Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison. You didn't do that at all. But the truth is, Jonathan wasn't fighting for his own glory, that's one of the major themes of his whole life is that he is constantly surrendered to the throne of God. 
He's surrendered to God, to God's will, to God's king. And, and he, ha- he wants nothing for himself. He only wants to go God's way and allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. And he's, he's one of these guys, here I am, Lord, send me. And so he never has a moment of selfish ambition or selfish pride in the, in the stories that are recorded for us, at least. And so he wasn't fighting for his own glory. He was fighting in the service of the king. And the truth is his accomplishments did belong to the crowd. And that leads us to our second important note. Jonathan does not complain even when he doesn't get the credit that was rightfully due to him, right? Now, later in the book of Samuel, if you're familiar with the story, we're gonna see Saul complaining, right? He gets mad when he hears that song everyone is singing, that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, that was actually true. In fact, Saul probably hadn't slain thousands at all, but he was mad about that even though it was a proper assessment of what was happening in the land of Israel at the time. But Saul complains and he's upset and he wants accolades and he wants greater honor, even if it isn't true. He wants that glory for himself and it's a problem. But Jonathan here, he doesn't hold a press conference. He doesn't file a grievance or do anything like that. He doesn't complain or demand recognition. His heart is empty of selfish ambition. And even though he didn't get his well-earned accolades that day, look what God did. Because Jonathan honored the Lord, the Lord ultimately honored him and made him shine like a star in the heavens. The real truth of what really happened that day in 1 Samuel 13, it has been recorded and preserved and delivered for us and proclaimed around the world for over 3,000 years now, right? And so in the end, God rewards his people. And so as we seek to serve the Lord, we really just have to empty ourselves as much as possible. And for some people, this is more of a hang up than others, but we have to empty ourselves of this idea that I need to be recognized. I need everyone to know that I'm the one that did it, that I'm the one that did such a good thing for God. Isn't God lucky to have me doing whatever it is that I did? Right? When, when our heart allows those kinds of ideas to ruminate within us, that's what Saul did. It's never what Jonathan did. Of course, we read later on you know, when it says, well, remember when David doesn't go out uh, to war when the, at the time when the kings usually go out to war and he makes his big mistake with Bathsheba and all of that, ultimately Joab comes to him and he says, hey man, you need to come out and at least show up to the battlefront because otherwise they're gonna say, I'm the one that won the victory instead of you. But it is Joab who won the victory. But you see, guys like Joab, at least in that moment, and guys like Jonathan understood, I'm here to support the throne. I'm here to support God Almighty who has sent me out to to be a member of his people and to fulfill a specific task. And so in the church, we're not going out with swords and spears and clubs to attack Philistines. You shouldn't do that if that was what you're planning to do tomorrow. But we're sent out with a different commission, right? You, you know, you're not a commissioned officer you know, to go out and attack Germans or attack Philistines or whoever it is. From the Lord, you're, you're commissioned to go out and be a fisher of men, right? And so as we go, we allow the Lord to praise us and not ourselves. And we don't need to, to hang our hat and get all upset if some human doesn't recognize us on the same day that we think we need to be recognized. Let the Lord do that. Let the Lord tell your story. 
Now, there's another devotional application for us here. Sometimes serving God and going his way is going to make us repulsive to the unbelieving world. Notice that it said there, they've become repulsive to the Philistines. Now, of course, these were real battles. This really happened. Jonathan was a real person. Saul was a real person. David was a real person. We're extracting principles about spiritual life from examples in their real historical lives. But naturally, the Philistines weren't happy about being attacked, and it makes sense that they fought back. But on the spiritual level, the same thing happens sometimes. Going God's way will sometimes lead to a backlash from the world. Now, if and when that happens, Jesus said the same thing would happen. He says, hey, if they hated me, they're going to really hate you. And the world did hate Jesus. Now, when we experience a sort of backlash from the world, don't compromise. Rally to the Lord, rally to his people, be strong and courageous, and just continue moving forward in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in response to Jonathan's attack, the Philistines amass a huge army, thousands of chariots, troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And we're told that the Israelites become terrified and they become so scared that they flee to caves and thickets anywhere they could go to escape the danger. It is then that Saul offers his unlawful sacrifice and the Lord then sends Samuel to say, all right, man, I'm giving the kingdom to David. I'm taking it from you and I'm giving it to David. That's the context of what we read next in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 13. Now, a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. Now remember, Michmash was the place where Saul had stationed himself with 2,000 troops in verse 1. Not long before that, in 1 Samuel 11, 330,000 soldiers had rallied to Saul to help deliver Jabesh Gilead. But by this point in 1 Samuel 13, Saul had sent 99% of them away. And now, after a stunning victory by his son Jonathan, somehow Saul has lost his own position and had to fall back even though he had twice as many forces as Jonathan did. 1 Samuel uh, 14, verse 1, we read this. That same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapon, come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Now listen, from the human perspective, their circumstances were terrible. And yet Jonathan was very hopeful and he just wanted to go out and glorify God. Make no mistake about it, they were in real big trouble here. The, Israel, the Israeli army in these passages is not the Israeli army of today, right? These guys were in real big trouble. They were fighting the dominant power who had iron chariots and more troops than you could ever count and weird, crazed Nephilim giants who would came around and like eat people and stuff like that. And so Jonathan is in a really bad situation. And yet look at the hope he has and look at like the excitement he has. He says, why don't we go out? Why don't we go out and do something for the Lord? Now, let me talk a little bit more about the kind of trouble they were in. At this point, a few minutes ago, they had 3,000 troops, not anymore. They were down to 600, 2,400 of the troops they had, had had dispersed and left and fled away. And so they're down to 600 troops. But a few verses before this, you read that in this whole group, there were only two swords in the whole group, one for Jonathan, one for Saul. And they're facing off against the biggest army in town who have chariots and giants and all the swords for, swords for every guy, right? I remember the terrible stories 
And I, uh, I don't remember if it was Stalingrad or Leningrad, but at one point, I, if I'm, this might be incorrect, but as I recall, they, the Russian army was so depleted, they were sending guys out two by two, and one guy had a rifle and one guy had a couple rounds, and well, when that guy dies, pick up his rifle. You know, it goes pretty bad for you when, you don't, when you're sending soldiers out without any weapons. And so uh, among these whole, this whole group of 600 soldiers, there was only two guys with swords. Terrible, terrible position. And so after taking stock of these circumstances and taking a look over at the Philistine garrison and kind of measuring things out, Jonathan thinks, this is plenty. This is a great situation. I can't wait to get up in the morning and go see what we can do. Uh, and that's, you know, just a really wonderful mentality for doing Christian ministry, whether that's in a church or outside of the church, as you just are being used by God, that whatever you have is plenty, right? Whatever you have as a Christian is plenty. As long as we're walking in the will of God and not walking in habitual sin, the Lord says he provides for his people, right? And sometimes we wish we had more or it would be nicer if we had more, but God says, hey, I have given you what you need to go out and do the work of evangelism and the work of the Christian life. We're not supposed to just do things for the sake of doing them. And we'll see, that's not what Jonathan is doing here. We'll, we'll see that. He's not just saying, well, I should do something, so let's just go do anything. And that's a mistake that sometimes we as Christians can make. I should be serving the Lord, so let me go do something and call it serving the Lord, right? But think about a household or think about a palace or think about Downton Abbey, if you were a Downton Abbey fan back when that was on. Were the servants in any of those situations supposed to do whatever they wanted to do? There's never a situation where it was like, to tell the servants to just do whatever, right? There were ideas and there was a program and there was instruction and there was, hey, this needs to be attended to and now, now you need to go over and do this. And so our Lord, who's a God of order and a God of, of incredible providence, a God of sovereignty, a God who's working out a lot of different things all over the world, day and night, night and day, year after year. It's his business what you and I are sent out to do. And so as Christians, we're not supposed to just do things for the sake of doing them. We're supposed to be about our father's business, right? We're supposed to be like faithful stewards who are busy and eagerly awaiting the master's return. And remember what Jesus said, hey, blessed are those servants who when the master returns, finds them busy doing their work, but not just whatever they wanted to do, not just saying, well, I've decided the master needs a new add-on and I'm gonna smash up his bedroom because I decided we need to build something new. No, we're supposed to be doing what the, our master has led us to do and instructed us to do. And we have a lot of general instructions in the word of God. And then we're told to seek out and discover those specific good works that the Lord wants us as individuals and families and a congregation to walk in. So Jonathan's not just doing things just to do them, but he does want to go out and serve the Lord and honor, uh, honor the throne. So good mentality. And what we see is that you don't have to wait for a ton of resources to do God's work. Jonathan had almost nothing. More resources can be helpful and they can sometimes increase the scope or the reach of your efforts, but all of us can go out and do what we've been called to do right now. After all, Jesus sent out the 12 with nothing but a walking stick, no extra bread, no extra shirt, no money in their belts. God can do a lot through a little, and that's great news. We may feel like, Lord, I don't have much to give. 
I don't have much strength. I don't have much knowledge. Someone tonight in our time of prayer shared that not many mighty, not many you know, wise, that I don't feel like I have much to give, Lord. And the Lord says, that's great. I'm just looking for faith the size of a mustard seed because the Lord can do a lot with a little. Five loaves and two fish, one smooth stone and a sling, a widow's two mites. The Lord can do a lot of work through small things. Now we see too that Jonathan was not impulsive. He's thoughtful. He chooses not to notify his father of what he's doing, undoubtedly because Saul would have forbidden him from doing it. The king was sitting around under a tree. This is what Saul loves to do. He just likes to sit around and hope someone else fights the battle for him. Uh, and instead of doing what needs to be done, he's just waiting and waiting and waiting. And so finally, Jonathan says, you know, I don't feel the need to be held back by this guy who clearly is not going the Lord's way, right? Saul sits while Jonathan seeks. Verse four of chapter 14 says, there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes, the other Sina. One stood to the north in front of Michmash and the other to the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, do what's in your heart. Go ahead, I'm completely with you. Jonathan's perspective is a great one here. We need help. I believe God will help us. And he's gonna help us through us obeying and our own effort, right? Saul's sitting around thinking, man, I wish the Philistines would leave. Jonathan's saying, yeah, I want the Philistines to leave too. And God has given me the power, us the power as his people to go out and do what he says we can do. He was courageous and daring, but notice he makes no demands of God. He says, hey, perhaps the Lord's gonna do something. He, doesn't, he submitted to God's will. He doesn't say, I've decided that God needs to do X, Y, and Z. He says, hey, using the parlance that we use sometimes in you know, modern Christianity, he's seen if this door is gonna open, right? Maybe the Lord's gonna open this door for me. And he doesn't make demands of God. He's submitted to God's will, but he's also seeking. We also see that Jonathan had no interest at living in peace with the Philistines. Saul's waiting around, hoping the battle will never come. He does the same thing during the Goliath incident. He did the same thing at the last garrison. He just waits around, but not Jonathan. He knows what God has provided. He knows what God has called them to do. And his fervent faith inspired those around him to join the Lord's work, even though it was hard and dangerous work. This pass they would have had to cross would have been covered in thorn bushes, sources say, and have been very difficult to navigate. It would leave them exposed to the enemy right out in the open, no surprise attack, but Jonathan did not shrink from the task. Verse eight, all right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we'll stay where we are and not go to up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That'll be our sign. And they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up, we'll teach you a lesson. And Jonathan said, follow me to his armor bearer for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer beside, behind him, excuse me. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half acre field. While so many other Israeli soldiers were in hiding, 
uh, and had even defected, one passage tells us, Jonathan willingly showed himself to his enemies, knowing that if God was for him, none could be against him. As we read the account, it is again clear that Jonathan wasn't acting for personal glory. His plan was bold, but he waited for identifiable leading before he proceeded. Crawling up on his hands and feet would mean he had no weapon at the ready. And so his faith is breathtaking to us as we read the account. And even in victory, we see his heart. What did he say in verse 12? The Lord has handed them over to Israel, not to me, but to Israel. God's glory and God's people were his focus. As a result of this attack, the Philistines fell into confusion. The army starts melting away. Rather than take advantage of this miracle God was working on their behalf, Saul uses his time to find out who left the camp without my permission. And he does like, he's like, okay, we need to like bring an ephod here. And I, I want an inquisition because I'm, I'm the really important person here. And I didn't say anybody could go. I was waiting, hoping that just they would leave on their own and say, maybe we don't want to fight these 600 guys who only have two swords. Who left? But then finally he realizes what an incredible opportunity he's about to squander. And so he finds it, okay, let's go fight these guys. And so they go fight and there's this incredible, incredible victory. Verse 21, there were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been in hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. When God moves, it's not just about adding numbers to our side. It's not just about adding bodies into seats, right? Look at the transformation that's happening here. Men who were too scared to come out into the light of day, men who had turned traitor and defected to the enemy were now coming back into the fold and were received into the ranks once again, all because Jonathan walked by faith. Jonathan was the instrument God used to set off their rescue of Israel that day. The Lord saved them from their enemies. And in the case of these defectors, God saved them from themselves. They were going to doom themselves to be destroyed as they said, well, we'll just join the Philistines, I guess. But look at the great grace of God. This moment of reconciliation helps us notice something else that's so wonderful about Jonathan's life. In many ways, he prefigures for us the Prince of Peace, Jesus. In fact, the name Jonathan means the gift of Jehovah, reminding us of the ultimate gift God would give through his son, Jesus Christ. In our passages tonight, what comparisons might we make? Well, first, Jonathan did not seek his own glory. His thoughts were always about God and God's anointed and God's people. Jesus said in John 8, verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. And throughout his life, we see that Jesus took the form of a servant, the ultimate servant in his mission to do God's will. Jonathan too lived as a servant. He didn't have to. He had rights and privileges and, and things all lined up for him. He was supposed to be the heir to the throne. We're gonna get deep into this in coming weeks as we look at his relationship with David. He didn't have to live as a servant, but he did. He's, we know that he had some brothers who were princes with them. We don't see them around doing much. They're just kind of hanging out till the end of the story. His own father refused to serve or to humble himself in situations like this, but not Jonathan. And we'll see an even greater depth of his servant's heart when it comes to his relationship with his dad and with his friend, David. Jonathan also prefigures Christ in the way he fought the enemy head on, unafraid with his own hands, his own efforts, his own strength. He fought the most important battles when everyone else was powerless and hopeless to defend themselves. 
And on top of that, he brought others with him into victory, whether it was a thousand men or just one armor bearer with him. He was always inviting people to join him and just, hey, come after me. We'll, we'll, we'll go into victory together. I mean, it's clear from the story in chapter 14 that Jonathan did not need his armor bearer, right? But he brought him along anyway and included him on that incredible adventure. Saul was constantly, by contrast, sending people away, driving people away, isolating himself. But Jonathan would make it his business to seek out others and encourage them and fight alongside them and build them up and equip them and give them opportunities and let them share in the victory, just like our Lord. In that scene with the garrison and the armor bearer, only Jonathan had a sword. It reminds us that as we follow our Prince of Peace, he's the only one with the sword. We don't fight with our own weapons, just the one that he supplies, the sword of his word. Like Jesus, Jonathan was willing to receive traitors back into the fold. Not all the Israelites simply ran away when the Philistines came against them. Many joined their enemies as defectors, the highest crime against a government, right? Treason. And there's Jonathan ready to welcome all those guys, all those cowards, all those traitors, welcome them right home. Come on in, join the ranks. You're still on our side. I'm ready to receive you. They didn't deserve it. They deserved death for their crime, but his heart was full of compassion and grace towards people. Jonathan's story has been preserved to inspire us and instruct us. Now, listen, sometimes it can be kind of frustrating when we read a story like his. He, he shines so brightly. He, he's such a great character. We think, yeah, but I'm just a guy in Hanford, right? I'm not Jonathan. Like, I, I'm not gonna be able to prove you know, my kind of character or metal the way that he did. Look at, look at how great he was. And the Bible answers that. I mean, we read these characters, we love them. We, if you grow up in the church, grow up in a Christian home, you hear these stories again and again and again, and they take on almost mythic proportion, even though these are all real people and real incidents. And listen, the Bible specifically addresses that. It says, hey, James says, you know, guys like Elijah, they were people just like you. He's just a man, just like us. And the book of Hebrews says, when it's talking about the hall of faith, like all of the big hall of famers in the hall of faith, and it says, you know what? We're all part of the same faith. And Hebrews goes as far as to say, and you know what? We in the church age have the really good part of the deal because we have the completed word of God. We have the revelation of the Messiah. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit all the time. We're better off than they were. And so we need to shoo away those thoughts that think, yeah, but I'm not Jonathan, I'm not Ruth, I'm not Abraham. Yeah, you're not, but they're not you either. You have the same God and you're part of the same faith, the same Holy Spirit wants to work in your heart. Your calling may be different. Opportunities are certainly gonna be different. Era and culture are different. Okay, God's the same, the faith is the same. God's plan and desire for his people is the same. And so we see a guy like Jonathan and he is so admirable. He's meant to inspire us and instruct us. And we should listen from his story to see an example of serving God passionately and faithfully and without fear, even in very fearful situations. But it also gives us a passing glimpse of our savior. What Jonathan was in his best and greatest, Jesus is in his smallest, right? I mean, if we are impressed by Jonathan, we need to ponder for a moment on how much more magnificent our Lord Jesus is. He too is a victorious warrior. He didn't conquer a Philistine stronghold or two. He defeated death and the grave and the sin and the devil. 
Prince Jonathan's brightness is nothing in comparison to the unmatchable splendor of the Prince of Peace. And so over the next couple of weeks, as we look at the Son of Saul, it should excite our hearts to love and honor and follow the Son of God and know that we can go with him into victory, into joy and rejoicing, knowing that the Lord is with us wherever we go.